Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. I am Andre, your host, and I am here joined by Vansh. Uh, How's it going, man? Doing great, Andre. Really excited to uh, be back talking tennis again. It's been a long uh, last three-month stretch of the season. And uh, just wanted to wish my, the American listeners here uh, ha- a happy Thanksgiving and Black Friday. And hopefully everyone's uh, safe and healthy enjoying their holidays. And uh, looking forward to bringing some tennis to you guys. Yeah, yeah. and the, the season's over now. But uh, before we get to it, like I'm going to uh, introduce a person that has been here for a couple times. It was my first uh, Twitter Twitter guest um owen lewis how's it going man uh, i'm doing great andre thank you um and happy thanksgiving happy black friday to everyone as well i hope um you're staying safe and hopefully staying safe with family uh really excited to be here and talk some tennis it's been a great atp fi- finals tournament and the tournaments that were able to happen this year i think were really fun to watch so i'm excited yeah same and i me and Vansha are really excited too and i think owen is also really excited because we have a, a bit of an announcement for 2021 when the new season of uh, the Tennis and Bagels podcast will start, is that Owen will also join the podcast as our third co-host. Um, so give it up for Owen and let's welcome him. <laughs> to Yay, the podcast. Owen! <laughs> yeah, thank you both very much. Uh, very honored to be a future co-host. I'm really looking forward to it. Yep. Yeah, the big that's cool. Also, two just the way, became the big yeah. three. So yeah, yeah, we begin with the big three. After that, we can do like a short episode, like ten minutes, like discussing who is who. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, by the way, uh, just a fun fact that I'm in Canada, as lots of people that listen to the podcast know. And Thanksgiving in Canada was in October, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a, more than a month ago. So I totally forgot uh, this, these two guys at Thanksgiving. So uh, trying to record, it was like, oh, crap, <laughs> Thanksgiving. And they had to tell me that I couldn't record at some point. Mm-hmm. But in any, in any case, uh, we are here and we're going to talk about the ATP finals that happened um about a week ago when this podcast will be released and and boy there was a lot that happened there and uh sadly i couldn't watch a lot of the matches i watched a lot of the week matches but uh, not the semifinals and final i, I watched a, as much as many highlights as i could find on youtube to try to fill me up and i listened to podcasts and read a few articles and lots of tweets but um what about you two guys like what do you First thoughts, I guess, on the the finals um, that that come uh, come to mind. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll go first. I thought it was a yeah, exceptionally high level of tennis. You know, I think you know, oftentimes in finals, in the ATP finals, uh, players are quite tired by the end of the season and knackered up. Um, particularly, you know, Rafael Nadal has never won this tournament before, and particularly the indoor season stretch, we see some 
some unique kind of matches in the group stages. This was the last year that it was held at uh, London. It's going to be moved to Turin uh, in 2021. So it was a uh, it was a great addition that saw Daniil Medvedev capture capture the trophy, and uh, you know, the first and last uh, players to win in London were both Russians, with Nikolai Davidenko winning in 2009 and Medvedev uh, completing it in 2020. And we've had now, I mean, five different champions since 2016, uh, with Murray and then Dimitrov and then Zverev and Tsitsipas and now Medvedev, and we're starting to finally see uh, these. These guys step it up with uh, Dominic Team and Medvedev, uh, who really, really, really uh, performed superbly under pressure and took out, you know, Djokovic and Nadal both in this tournament. And Daniil Medvedev, you know, became the only guy in NITO ATP Finals history to beat the world number one, two, and three in the same tournament, which is hugely impressive, especially given the season that he had had, you know, coming in. So this was a great stretch for him to finish to win 10 matches in a row and seven of which against top 10 players. And he was the deserving champion. I mean, he went undefeated all week and I guess we can talk a little bit about Dominic first, but to me, I mean, really great end to, to the season. What's been a pretty uh, disturbing season in a lot of ways and disruptive, but great to finish on a high note. Yeah. I mean, I I thought it was a great tournament as well. Um, Like you said, Vonch, I think an issue with the tournament, uh, maybe not an issue, but something that, sometimes takes away from the quality is that a lot of players are tired, particularly Nadal, who you said. Um, and he, I think everyone was fresh going in. Nadal was able to play some great tennis, though he still didn't win. I think uh, we had a dream semifinal lineup with um, kind of the big two right now, who have um, split the last several major titles, jo- Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and then kind of the two um, most prominent, um, most skilled right now, of the young challengers, Dominic Team and Daniil Medvedev. And so we had these two spectacular semifinals, Nadal against Medvedev, which is not just a fascinating contrast of styles, but of um, it's kind of a constantly evolving matchup. You can see them constantly adjusting their tactics to meet what the challenges that the other one poses. And then Djokovic and Team, who probably played the match of the tournament last year, which uh, was an incredibly high-octane match. Um, very exciting, two tense tiebreaks. Um, so like you said, Vonch, incredible, um, mental and physical effort from Daniel Medvedev to beat the top three players in the world in pretty quick succession. Um, and he was never really all that close to losing. He, um, Nadal served for the match against him, but Medvedev broke him to love. Although, um, I would actually say that the player who impressed me the most this tournament was team. You saw him beat Nadal in two tie breaks. You saw him, you saw Djokovic pull off one of his impossible escape acts in a tiebreak um in their semi-final match last time Djokovic did that was against Monfils in Dubai ended up winning the third set 6-1 um that could have easily happened to team but team says no I'm different I'm gonna show everyone that gets to a tiebreak goes down 4-0 and then wins seven of the last eight points to win the match so even though he ended up falling a little short against Medvedev in the final team pulling off another like steel against Djokovic was kind of my defining memory of the tournament. I think for me, like one of the things that stuck out to me the most and lots of people have said it already, but like, it's, it's fantastic how even with the, the weird season that we've had, like the, whatever we had, like five months with no tennis at all. And, uh, it's still the, the, the top eight were actually pretty, you know, they, they were really a good representation of like the actual year, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we had um, players like um, Rublev and um, 
Schwartzman, who unfortunately couldn't even take a single. Actually, did did Rublev win a match? He did, right, against the team. Yeah, yeah Rublev, I'd say, actually he, um, performed he got according to yeah. according to what we expected. Could, yeah, so he Schwartzman couldn't take a single a single win. But honestly, yeah. like he, it was a bit pretty big difference uh, for Schwartzman because of maybe his game style. His some people say he's a uh, vertically challenged, so. Uh, it 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 makes it a little bit tougher for him to win, especially on a fast court, not mm-hmm. having a big serve like the other guys do. And he was, he he was put in um in a group with Medvedev and Zverev, who are two of the biggest serves servers right now on tour. Um, yeah. and Djokovic was like not a big server, but like he's a big three, which is probably bigger than being a big server. But in any case, uh, yeah, but. Major props to them for um, qualifying. Rublev was kind of like making his debut in the elite of tennis, really, like a, as a, as a player, not necessarily the uh, the ATP final. So it was really cool to see like both the sides of like people were just like, "Hey, let's watch those guys who have been doing really well," and they're like, "Hey, now let's watch the guys who are actually probably going to win the tournament." Like in one of those select few, of, like two or uh, two to four actual players. Um, uh, so. It it was interesting in in that regard for <laughs> for me and uh, Medvedev and team were probably they stuck out to me because they beat uh, Djokovic and Nadal and they both did so and uh, there's been a lot of talks on on um, I guess I guess I would say uh, mostly Twitter that's most of the tennis fans that I talk to uh, that uh, about you know the changing of the guard and things like that and people have been talking about oh yeah but they have not won any slams. Team has won uh, U.S. Open without having to beat any of the big three, and he's got beaten by all of them. And uh, well, by not by I don't know if all of them, but like uh, by Djokovic and Nadal in big matches in the Grand Slams that they played. So, but I feel like there is a difference right now. Is that those guys, Team and um, Team and Medvedev in particular, they have been uh, quite consistent in the in their challenging of uh, in on the tour. It, they've been really showing lots of um, good tennis. Lots in lots of matches, they come up, uh, on, you know, with the win. Even when they were not ex- necessarily playing extremely well, um, uh, Kyrgyz team winning the U.S. Open versus versus Zverev. That was a bad match tennis quality wise, but he pulled it off. You know that that that's what matters. He got the title in the end. He's a Grand Slam champion, and no one can take that away from him. Um, so I think this time is kind of this. It's probably one of the first times that I have actual real hopes that there's going to be that could be a change on on tour for the next few years, um, and it's it's really impressive how Medvedev has done uh, has taken his wins. It's really sad for a team who who has lost now two years in a row in the final, um, but yeah, I feel like we can expect still great things from them. Um, and I was thinking today, like maybe team's a little older, but so he that may play to his advantage in the in the end of uh, like their careers. But I feel like right now he's still in a pretty good spot to try and get more more majors and whatnot. Like objectively speaking. Like from a from my own perspective I've I've said sometimes that I may believe that team doesn't really have what it takes to be number one. But yeah. I will be excited if you prove me wrong. So um but I think if of those two I think Medvedev has better chances of becoming number one first. If he can, ch- if he can uh, adapt his game to become better on clay, so yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you pretty much said everything there, Andre. But uh, you know, I mean, speaking more about Dominic Team, it's it's very impressive, kind of how he's made that um, made the necessary improvements to perform well 
on hard courts. The improvements that you see technically in his game, where he's improved, he's improved a lot his return of serve. He's really stepping up um, in big moments, but he's playing high margin, high power tennis to where he's not, you know, going 100% intensity on every single shot throughout all of these sets against the big three, but he's really just finding ways to, um, whether it's taking the ball early on the rise, coming forward, using his uh, using his slice to set up forehands that he can just absolutely attack at 100 miles per hour across court or down the line for winners. And it's just these little steps that you see in his, see in his game where he you feel like he can outpower these guys uh, from baseline to baseline rallies, which is quite rare uh, to do against elite players like Djokovic and Nadal. And he's now proven that he is uh, capable of doing it in best of three sets where he can beat both of these guys back to back. Now the question for him is just going to be, you know, can he beat a Djokovic and, and a Nadal back to back to back? Can he beat a Djokovic too and, 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 and a Nadal and potentially a Medvedev or Zverev or somebody um, in that kind of tier to win a Grand Slam? And he's awfully close. I mean, if we look at Australia, he went through Nadal in a similar type of situation where he was able to win three tie breaks against him and then additionally win two more tie breaks in the semifinals and then put himself in a close position against Djokovic. And I think him, the next two or three years is going to be really crucial for team if he wants to really um, you know, become an all-time great player and win one of these slams with the big three still around. And, you know, speaking of number one, I just think Medvedev is a kind of a guy who is quite, uh, who doesn't have the same offensive artillery as team in the sense he doesn't have the same kind of plus one power that team can generate sort of off that, that first serve and forehand is so deadly. So where Medvedev kind of, he, he gets kind of better as the match goes on. You get, you really start to see he's a, what I call a really good advocate for a best-of-five set tennis, Medvedev. Because of the way he plays and the way he changes tactics and the way he surprises you, they're just not predictable patterns. And so in my opinion, in order for him to get to world number one, I think clay is a huge stretch of the season to where, you know, I mean, apart from Barcelona final that he made last year, he's really kind of got to improve and add more um, just, you know, steadiness isn't going to be enough on clay. You know, he's going to need to you know, play play a much more different topspin kind of a brand to where, you know, he can find different ways to attack and redirect, which is not so easy on a clay court, given his style and the way he he plays. I mean, it can be done, but it just looks like it's got, he's got a lot of work to do on that surface. Whereas for Dominic Team, I kind of feel like three out of the four majors, he's got a legit shot, you know, at at least, if not getting to the semis or higher, but really contending. I mean, if something happens to Nadal at the French Open, you know, he's my guy to win the win the tournament there as well. And he's now won U.S. Open and come really close in Australia. So, And he's close in terms of 2020. I think he's the second best player of the year um, after Djokovic in terms of just 2020 points. So I think if he keeps that trajectory up and we start seeing Djokovic and Nadal having some off weeks to where maybe they can't close out a match, like Nadal, for instance, serving against Medvedev. You know, that's where I think team can really pounce and start accumulating enough points to where I think he is going to be the next world number one. If not next year, then maybe the year after. You know. Yeah. Um that's I, my take on it. I agree with you, Vonch. I think um I I'm gonna be a little wary when I talk about the changing of the guard because I am I've fallen victim to recency bias time and again. But mm-hmm. I have been very impressed by Dominic team in the ATP finals, and I think that Slowly over the last couple of years, he has been compiling these pieces that will eventually help him become world number one or win a major, beating 
Djokovic or Nadal. He has several wins over Nadal on clay. He's beaten Djokovic twice at the French Open. He beat Nadal at the Australian Open, and he finally beat them both in the same tournament this past week. And so really, all that's left for him to do is either beat them back-to-back at a major or beat Djokovic in Australia or Nadal at the French Open. Like, they have been... Team has been slowly eating away at their realms, and now really all that's left is he's yet to beat them where they're the very best in a major final at their most successful major. But he's yeah. been improving. I've been so impressed with his rate of improvement. Like you said, Vonch, his, his forehand seems to just keep getting better. It's I can't really come up with something to compare it to. If I had to come up with a shot to liken it to, I would say maybe like a prime Federer forehand, although not, not as reliable, I don't think, but it's it's fierce. Like He can hit it anywhere from any part of the court. He hit 100 mile an hour inside out forehand winners on set point down and set point up against Nadal in the first set tiebreak of their round robin match. His backhand down the line is a massive weapon. His slice keeps improving. Um, he didn't break serve much this week, but his he's been returning pretty well, I think. He's a good serve. Um, I think maybe his volleys could use some work, but he, physically he's very, very tough. I think he has all the pieces that he needs, and he's co- competitive on both clay and hard courts. So I think Australia next year, I would really, I, I would go so far as to call him co-favorites with Djokovic there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, another thing I'd just like to add to that uh, that you just said is uh, perhaps a little bit more of an improvement in the big point situations in the finals, mm-hmm. which is obviously, you know, pretty exhausting if you're going to go through Djokovic and Nadal just to even get to a final. Um, it's pretty easy at some point to have a letdown where he can get fatigued in a final set like we saw against Medvedev or like we saw yeah. Djokovic at the Australian Open in a fifth set. So I think it's how does he handle those situations because so far he's had moments in these matches, even against the best, where he's had a little bit of a blip, mm-hmm. uh, where sometimes I worry that he's going to throw in that one bad service game where he'll just break himself. You know, I right. think because he goes so hard at every game and goes full throttle kind of... Um, you know, hitting the ball extremely, extremely hard at, on both his backhand and forehand, reaching triple digits. Eventually, that's going to take its toll on you and, and your physicality and your decision-making. And yeah. sometimes it can happen when there's pressure and nerves. You know, he talked about it, that he expected himself to close out the match against Djokovic sooner, given what he had gone through at the U.S. Open Finals, you know. And mm-hmm. closing that out, he thought maybe that'd give him a boost. But it's just, I mean, the margins are so thin right now at the top of the game with these three guys. Um, you know, without Federer in the picture, obviously, that uh, sometimes you can't afford to have that one game and let down. You know, like, for instance, at the Australian Open, he was serving against Nadal at 5-4 uh, in the fourth set, and then he just broke himself. Yeah. And then found a way, credit to him, because he really found a way in the tiebreak to then pull off. I think he pulled off an amazing, stunning cross-court backhand winner yeah, passing six shot all. at 6-all in the fourth set tiebreak. So, I mean, he's he's got to count on himself to you know, kind of choke, but then reset really quickly. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, if against a peak big three member, it's not going to be so easy. They're not going to let you off the hook every time. Yeah, and I feel so, like one of the things that I kind of get reminded of, like now that you speak, now that I talk about it, it's kind of Djokovic pre-prime in a sense, like maybe 2008 to 2010-ish, mm-hmm. is that Djokovic was prone to kind of like beating himself. Like he would just yeah. kind of not be able to keep up like mentally with both Nadal and Federer. And well, to his to his uh, credit or to his side, like to his defense, Nadal and Federer both kind of like hitting his prime a little early were so full of confidence and uh, gave Djokovic like pretty bad defeats and pretty heartbreaking losses as well. Like in th- throughout his career, before he hit 
he hit his prime really. But at the same time, I feel like team it kind of like needs to kind of cross the 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 line a little bit to like the point where he is a mental champion in a sense, right? Yeah. Um, if anything, that the U.S. Open final really doesn't give me much of a of a say like hey he's finally did it but like at the same time it, it may bring him to a new place in his in his mental game so i feel like this could be interesting uh and back to the finals uh when he beat nadal 7-6 7-6 uh, after struggling um for the latter part of the season with a couple um injuries and whatnot it's like i feel like it was really interesting for him to like really come through in straight sets against uh against nadal who was actually playing really well and then against Djokovic again being love for in, in the in the final set even though he lost that tie break but Djokovic is is as clutch as pretty much nobody on tour is mm-hmm. so you know I feel like it, lots of credit to him maybe he's actually kind of getting there we'll see definitely Australia is going to be and we've been talking about Australian Open like since tennis kind of essentially begun um, yeah. to see like how these guys are going to come out uh, come out and it's just going to be interesting to see like what happens there because either of the two things could happen. Either they actually do something and none of the big three wins uh, the the Grand Slam or Djokovic wins it again or Federer. And at that point, it's like all hope is lost again. It's like, oh, come on. Like they actually didn't actually make it. We're just, it was just the ATP finals. Right. Um, so that's one of the, the things about the ATP finals as well is that um, as you mentioned, uh, so many players have been just so tired and so fatigued at the end of the season that even yeah. I think the last five years or three, um, three to five years has been a different winner and none of them has been a yeah. big three winner. Mm-hmm. So Djokovic's last win was in 2017. Am I wrong? No, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're close there. I mean, you know, 2015 Djokovic wins his fifth title yeah. and then we have Murray and so, then we have yeah, Murray. Chauvin. Yeah, but... but uh, yeah, I mean, the last three years, it's been, you know, Zverev, obviously, in 2018, and people were expecting huge things from him uh, yeah. circa 2019. And obviously, he never quite got to that level. Yeah, so that's, the double yeah. fault. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's the, that's the thing about last year. The, the finals. Yeah. It, it may be really good, it may be really awesome, but it's the, it's the best of three. And then mm-hmm. that's when the slams that we actually get to see if this, these guys are actually ready. Right, know? yeah. And that's why but, I wouldn't yeah. call it a changing of the guard. You know, I'd say it's more of a it's more part of this transition. You know, changing of the guard doesn't just happen suddenly. It's mm-hmm. not yeah, like a sure. passing of the baton moment, you know? Yeah. It, like, that's not going to happen. Like, I just don't see that happening, you know, at one tournament, let's say. Mm-hmm. Especially at the end of the year, given everything we've just talked about with the ATP finals and how we've had new winners. I think it's just going to be a gradual process where we will see the tide slowly start to shift. But as for me right now, I mean, you got Djokovic, who's an absolute favorite at the Australian Open, having won eight finals out of eight there and then Nadal pretty much untouchable at the French and you look at Wimbledon and it's like um, you know the last 15-16 years it's been only the big three and Murray so and then the US Open is the one where we've had some new champions yeah but Mm -hmm. but really for these guys to break through what's encouraging to me is um, you know team even though he's sometimes losing these finals like we're talking about like the last two years he's lost these back-to-back finals is he's performing well in tie breaks which mm-hmm. is a really good indicator of him stepping up um, in the at the big points and finding what to do. He's spoken about how he's kind of emulated Djokovic in these tiebreak situations, and he sees that he pretty much doesn't... Djokovic, in these tiebreaks, the last couple of seasons, really hasn't been making many unforced errors or giving away any free points. And that's something team is trying to do with. But 
essentially backing himself and going for those outrageous shots like we like we saw in the tiebreak against Djokovic. He's down 0-4 and he comes back and wins seven of the next eight points. An absolutely stunning cross-court backhand winner that he hit to go up 6-4 in the match. So Incredible. it's points like that that really make you believe that, you know, maybe this year is a little different than 2018 and 2019 mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. 2017. And obviously, you know, Stefanos, even though he didn't have quite this the year that we were all expecting, I mean, he's pretty much, he's not gotten any worse, but he's not gotten much better. So I think, you know, he's also going to be in the mix, but it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see next year sort of how the draws break through and Federer obviously being the unknown coming back out. Coming back at the Australian Open, but I'm glad that we're starting to see a change more or less at the Master Series events with Medvedev winning three of them, team winning in Indian Wells last year. You know, I mean, these guys getting really close. Um, Zverev obviously has peaked earlier than these guys, so he's won his share as well. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see uh, this mm-hmm. final transition, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Like w- one last thing I'll say on the changing of the guard, I think. <laughs> Vance, like like you said, it doesn't happen all at once. Um, we saw Titi Pass beat Federer at the Australian in 2019. People mm-hmm. said that was a changing of the guard, and it wasn't. Right. He got crossed by Nadal, who then got crossed by Djokovic. Um, I think we saw Shanghai last year. Zverev beat Federer and Titi Pass beat Djokovic in the same day. People thought that Correct. was a changing of the guard, and it wasn't. But I will say that this did feel a little bit different. Um, I like As we've seen with the ATP finals the past mm-hmm. few years, uh, the results have not meant much. But this, I think... Djokovic and Nadal were both physically ready. I think they were both informed to an extent. I don't think they played their best in their losses, but I think they played sufficiently well that we can read into the results a little bit. Yeah. And I think that Medvedev and team have been knocking on the door for some time. So I do think that this this did feel like the start of something. Like mm-hmm. and this is not to say that team that maybe Medvedev will beat Djokovic in Australia and then team will go and beat Nadal in Paris. I think um it would not at all be surprising if Djokovic wins in Melbourne, Nadal wins the French again, and then Djokovic or Federer wins Wimbledon. But Correct. I do think I do think that if not this year, um, Team and Medvedev are coming. Um, I, th- I think it's going to happen soon. Like, and they've shown a sufficiently high level at the ACP Finals to make me think that um, like Nadal and Djokovic should be should be worried for the upcoming majors. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think you said it right. Like. It, in those words, like I think this is the start of something. I feel like this is this is how it feels. It doesn't feel like changing up the guard. It feels like now something finally has caught my attention in the in and the players outside of the big three, you know. And uh, coming back to the tournament a little bit, like if you if you were to talk about um, the semifinals, especially since those are you know the probably the biggest matches of this tournament um, in terms of um, historical importance, if you will. Because he was a Nadal and Djokovic who could have made another final of, for for themselves, but they didn't. We ended up having none of them in the final. So, how about you guys talk a little bit about the final a bit? Like I haven't, sadly, haven't watched much, so I have seen a couple shots and a couple highlights. So the one thing that I could get from it was that um, uh, Medvedev played incredible from the baseline, and then he completely lost it and went to the net and still kept winning a lot. This changed his tactics a lot and it's just completely unpredictable. A lot of variety in his game. And team, same old, hits really hard, runs really fast and, you know, it was just very, very solid. Lots of RPMs. The backhand is just 
cannonball. Yeah. But his slice is is improved, but it's not great. And uh, his volley is in that game needs a lot of work. That's from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Although he compensates a lot with the the baseline game, yeah. which is ridiculous you know but yeah like what do you guys can what can you guys say about those sure. two semifinals so i guess we'll start with the the first uh the first semifinal that we saw which was team against novak which was a rematch of uh last year they played this amazing match in the group stage where i th- where i felt like both players played better than they did in the semifinal that we saw today but nonetheless you know i mean they lived up to it there was no crowd uh tough circumstances obviously team uh in probably in better form heading into this match. Djokovic a little bit fatigued uh, at the end of the season, obviously. We spoke about uh, the loss that he had in Vienna, and then he hadn't played in a while, uh, didn't play Paris. Obviously a one-sided French Open defeat, uh, what happened at the U.S. Open, but still the best player this year. And they faced off first match uh, on Saturday um, in the semis. And earlier you you could see kind of similar patterns to what we saw before with team absolutely staying with Djokovic in the backhand-to-backhand rallies. The biggest shot on the court was the team forehand, which he was really using to open up um, and dictate. And I felt like the slice, the thing about the slice is it's not a particularly uh, exquisitely pleasing shot to you know look at technique-wise if you compare it to a Roger Federer or a Gregor Dimitrov on the tour who maybe have uh, better slices technically, but it does the job and that it forces Novak to generate offense on his own. And in this tournament, he hasn't been extremely comfortable with winning quick points from his forehand and you know, coming to, coming to the net and finishing off. He's had trouble finishing off points throughout this tournament. We saw that against Medvedev when he played Medvedev in the group stages, and he, it was a very tight match for about three, three sets. Uh, for, I'm sorry, for about like the first six games of the match. And we thought, oh my god, we're in for a three-hour thriller. But, you know, Medvedev was able to break Djokovic down in the longer rallies. And that's what I noticed earlier on in the in the match, uh, that because of the season, uh, it's been a really long season for Novak, so he doesn't quite have the same cardio. But getting back to the match, team was the one dictating most of the play with his forehand. He was the one hitting more winners, also making a few uh, unforced errors going for, uh, for shots. But I think Novak does that to you with his tremendous defense and his court coverage. But... Uh, he was having a lot of success with a slice, kind of making Djokovic generate off of low balls and then setting up his forehand. And credit to him because he was taking initiative and coming forward a lot. Um, if you look at the match stats, he was 16 out of 17 at the net, which is a really good, uh, which is a really really good sign for me that he's coming in at the right times, you know. And so I think, and contrary, I think Djokovic was struggling to finish points, and he was. A, a sitting duck at the net. A lot of times, mm-hmm. team would bring uh, would bring Djokovic in and uh, on his own terms. And team and Djokovic struggled to put away forehands, uh, forehand volleys, or overhead smashes, and uh, actually didn't seem to enjoy coming to the net much. He was nine out of eighteen at the net, which is a pretty low percentage. And the one game that he actually broke in the first set, team won at seven five. Um, you know, he hit three passing shots right at Djokovic's feet. And Djokovic missed all three of those vol- of, of those volleys. And you just feel like he had to have made one or two of those. And maybe this match could have gone differently because, you know, as you know, when you're playing against top 10 players, the first set is extremely crucial. And then, of course, we saw, we talked about it earlier, what happened in the second set. It was much of the same story with team having had some missed opportunities and then it got to a tie break. And suddenly team had these four set points. And, 
you know, on two of those points, Djokovic came up with clutch play uh, and finally came up, finally hit out a little bit more, came up with a good forehand that hit the line and a big first serve. But really two of the shots uh, that team had on his racket, on his serve, were ones that he should have put away. And he, I think he just got conscious of what he was on the verge of achieving. And he had one double fault and then one unforced error in a rally where he chose to go down the line with a forehand that he probably should have uh, waited a little bit longer to hit and maybe find a little bit more of an opening. But full credit to team because I think like Owen mentioned earlier, you know, when Djokovic goes on a tear like that and remains error-free in tie breaks and limits his unforced errors, next thing you know, he usually wins that third set pretty comfortably and you're thinking, okay, this is his chance now to make his to make the final. And team just never let up. And he, he showed brilliant fortitude and you know, I mean, I'd say they were pretty even until about four love in the in the tiebreaker where Djokovic really started to pull away and then team backed himself and he went for those big forehands and he went toe-to-toe with Novak from the baseline. So I thought it was a really interesting kind of mix of what we've what we've talked about already and yeah. team coming through in the, in the big moment in the third set breaker. Yeah. Yeah, just a couple of things I'll add. I think... I think team should have finished it in straights. Like like you said, he yeah. he did have a set point on his own serve in the second set tiebreak. I think Djokovic was he he was a little off. He I don't yeah. think he had a break point the entire match. Did he? He had a love thirty in the first set, but I don't think he yeah, ever even no got break to break points. point. And that is that is shocking from him. That happens like what once every couple of years. I remember even when um, Federer demolished him at the finals last year. He had he had a break point. So, so that was that was surprising. Yeah. Um, like you said, I think the volleying was weird. Like he, he's never great at net, but there were several cases where a team would just blister one down the middle, and he right. would flap at it or reach for something that he didn't have to reach for. We saw we saw a lot of shanked volleys. Um, and then yeah, a quick correction on the break points. He did actually have three break points in the second set, but that oh, was more he? that was more after team had squandered his couple of chances to take control of the match, and he would have gone up a break. And then probably, you know, maybe assuming he holds on when that side six four, but mm-hmm. uh, but you're you're absolutely right about the volumes. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I'm, what what game were the break points in? I don't recall those at all. Um, it was at three four in the second set. Mm-hmm. I think Djokovic had uh, team had chances at two all to go up a break, and okay. he'd be up serving seven five three two. But then it got to, I think he just missed a couple returns on those break mm-hmm. points at three four. Um, there was one break point at thirty forty, which would have then given Djokovic a five three lead, and he would have served right. out for the second set. So it was in that eighth game of the match. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I missed that, but he 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 tends to be opportunistic. So um, yeah. Djokovic, so that was a missed opportunity. And then I, sure. I do think um, after he went up four zero um, in the third set tiebreak. To be fair, tiebreaks are usually over at that point, especially yeah. for him. I think he was either fourteen and one or fifteen and one in tiebreaks on the year. Right. Um, but he did make a couple errors. I remember team aced for one, four and then hit a winner against Sir for two, four. And then Djokovic sliced into the net after yeah, a long rally. Into and, the net. And, and then he point. missed a regulation backhand, uh, right. at three, four. And yeah. I, I think that's where he lost the match because then team aced again, hit this absolutely thunderous backhand winner at four, five coaxed a hanging backhand from Djokovic with the slice and then just unloaded yeah. on it, a uh, clean winner. And so I yeah. think Djokovic really could have um and he did make his first serves uh throughout the tie break he said right. this after the match but those two errors at two four four two and four three 
I think that's where that's where he lost the match. Other for other sure, than that, he sure. really didn't do anything wrong in the tiebreak. He saved a match point at four six with an ace. Um, made team win it on his sixth match point. So he he didn't do a lot wrong in those tiebreaks, but I, yeah. he wasn't as error free as he has been for a lot of this year. So. And I think Djokovic is starting to realize that he played a good match here. He, mm-hmm. he had a good first serve percentages. First serve points one were eighty five percent. Honestly, that probably kept him yeah. in the match. A lot of the service games he was holding quite comfortably and he was able to get it to tie breaks and like you said didn't make a whole lot of errors other than that those that slice approach and that regulation back end in the tie break so i think yeah. he'll be looking at this going like it's not enough anymore just to yeah. stay error free i think i have to take the initiative and be a little bit more assertive in these big situations to where you know just remaining error free is not going to be enough anymore against a guy mm-hmm. like team that's where you're starting to see this shift now that these that Nadal and Djokovic are playing well in these posi- in these matches, but exactly. it's starting to it's they're starting to find realize that they need to do a little bit more, you know, and they need to change yeah. things. They need to maybe come in and so maybe they're a little bit tentative. You saw a lot of those approach shots. Djokovic was quite tentative in his approach shots in this match. He was coming in off of, you know, pretty like lackluster approach shots that were pretty central and the team was finding the angles. He was dipping it down at his feet. He was making Djokovic really uncomfortable. And even with the slice and, you know, then going for big shots right after that, going for the backhand down the line, using the Federer playbook and going for a short slice. I think these kind of variations that you're seeing now and this big power that team has, I think that combination makes it really deadly. And then, of course, when he's opportunistic, which he needs to improve on. But yeah, I think one one of the things that you said pretty well, like uh, that not only Djokovic, but a lot of people. Well, when we watch, watch a match and then you see like uh, a big three player missing missing shots like this, it, it happened a lot to Federer in the beginning of um, of the end of his prime in a way. Like mm-hmm. he was starting to miss back uh, shots like here and there, and and people were just quick to to say, "Oh yeah, no, he's a he was a bit off today" or stuff like that. You know, but like as time goes on, it's like you know <laughs> they're just proving that they're human in that sense. And mm-hmm. the fact yeah. that he he got himself to a, a four. Um, to a four love position, made two or three errors. Like you know, he lost his mini break. Sure, yeah, but like he's still in this tie break. At this point, he was tied or something like yeah, that. So pretty big lead. It's so. it's a major it's a major um, point for team to actually get to win that that match and to win that tiebreaker because even though he got those points of three points or not, the match was well. The tiebreak was really not not over yet. It was quite mm-hmm. the opposite. He could still. Um, not make anything after that, you know, and he comes up with a massive backhand. So I feel like it's important to realize as well that uh, Djokovic did play a really good match, and it was opportunistic of team to see to seize the moment really um, when he got those three points, and he's like, okay, now I'm back in this, and just rips a backhand and just goes on to win the the tiebreak after that, and you know, completely um dominate after what Djokovic was a little bit of a, a blip in his performance right right there but he yeah. was still in it so mm-hmm. I think it's it's really it's really good to understand the the level that those matches are being played right now and uh yeah absolutely and that's self just is... expecting that to to go back yeah. and in this lamps this is really all that this is it this ATP finals for me is screaming um excitement for this lamps because it's like it he hasn't. We. I. I personally haven't been anticipating majors like that in a while. In terms of 
not necessarily the race, the Grand Slam race, you know, mm-hmm. like from from the big three. But I've been, been looking as like, hey, maybe new guys can actually beat the big three. You know, even though I'm Djokovic a fan, I'm I'll be glad to see people come up and winning more of that and more matches like that, you know, on tour because big three won't last forever. And I still want to watch tennis for a long time because unlike them, I don't retire when I'm like 35. So, you know. <laughs> I keep yeah. watching tennis until I'm 80 or until I die or whatever. So, yeah. I want players to be playing well and winning a lot of stuff. Yeah. Way yeah. into the future. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm so excited by this as, as well. Like, I'm like, like, I would love to see Djokovic and Nadal play each other more. And I'd like to see them play Federer. But I'm like, give me another Djokovic team final in Australia. Like, with, with team improved and Djokovic not struggling physically. Like, I, I would love to see that. Um, or I want to see team Medvedev and Djokovic Medvedev. Um, I, yeah, I, Andre. I think that these finals have excited me for some matchups like like no tournament has for a while. Um, so I really hope that we get to see some more of the same in 2021 because um, because I think even if these if Team and Medvedev don't kind of ascend to the top next year, I, I think they're the ones that that will the next ones that will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if anything, it's going to be challenging to beat. Yeah think so i mean it's yeah. it's exciting and you know you see the way the just these matchups go i mean it's not i mean these are starting to become regular rivalries now mm-hmm. as yeah. regular as we can anticipate really because i mean djokovic and team have now met 12 times yeah. in the last three it, seasons it, it's a real it, it rivalry seem like, yeah. it does seem mm-hmm. like it's going to be a really good great rivalry you know mm-hmm. and it's going to be close and you know team has now won five of the last seven so it's mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it builds up real anticipation every time they play, especially yeah, with the yeah. contrast of styles. You're kind of reminded a little bit of what he can do with his one-handed backhand and his big match play. You're reminded a little bit of Wawrinka. Yeah. Um, and, you know, similar kind of age when it started to peak, and we're starting to see that the team, the next two or three years, are going to be really crucial. Mm-hmm. See how many he can get on the board. Yeah. Speaking of rivalries, how about we go off to the next uh, yeah. Yeah. next semifinal, which is actually an interesting rivalry as well. We have mm-hmm. uh, two big um, big wins for Nadal against Medvedev last year, which were in the U.S. Open, where he lost, he won in, in five sets after squandering a two love lead, yeah. and then um, Medvedev losing to Nadal, being five one up in the finals. Yeah. So, what about this one? What changed? Yeah. So. Um... I I think this was a really really weird match. I don't so um I think Medvedev was playing very well. He was he was playing well from the baseline. He was pressuring all of Nadal's service games early, and then he kind of just threw in a pretty horrible game at three yeah. four. I think it was got broken to love. He I think he made his first sixteen first serves. Then he started messing some. Um, Nadal got some momentum. Won that first set six three, but was honestly kind of the inferior player in that stretch. Yeah. Then. Medvedev goes on a bit of a hot streak at the start of the second, goes up 4-1, and then he lapses, Nadal comes back, wins four games in a row. And so at 5-4, I was like, is this really going to happen? Is Nadal going to win this in straight sets after being, after Medvedev has pretty clearly been the better player? And um, to his credit, Medvedev didn't get discouraged, broke to love. And then... Um, yeah, I mean, played he, a great game to break, by the way, it should be said. Yeah. I mean, he hit a return winner. He had two really deep returns right at Nadal's feet. And mm-hmm. Nadal played it a so-so game that, you know, if he had had a little bit more rhythm, 
I yeah. think, and he, like you said, it never really felt like six three five four. Never really felt like he was the best player on the court. Yeah, exactly. Because, like I, I wouldn't call yeah. this a choke from Nadal. I don't think he was ever really playing the ten, the tennis right. he needed to play to be in that position. I think he got a little bit fortunate, and so the break wasn't right. surprising to me. But what was surprising to me was how the match ended. Um, so Medvedev played a great tiebreak. I think the one all point. This exhausting rally, Medvedev ends it with an inside-out forehand winner. But yeah. then, um, but then Medvedev really tired Nadal out in the third set. He, um, so so the three-all game was where it switched. Uh, Nadal serving, he had forty fifteen, and I think, and he had been coming to net a lot throughout the match because he was having trouble keeping with Medvedev from the baseline, and this was something he did in their U.S. Open final as well. Um, and he had been doing it to pretty good effect, but he. He hit some average approaches and some average volleys and got passed quite a bit in that game. Yeah. And so he ended up getting broken. And then you could kind of see the air go out of him at that point. Medvedev uh, separated himself from Nadal physically. Um, he consolidated quickly, and then he broke Nadal again to win the match. Um, Nadal was trying to hang in, but he, um, he he was gassed. Like Medvedev did the same thing to Djokovic after the first seven games of their match, and then team late in the third set as well. Um Medvedev just, he's a roadrunner. He can play from the baseline, run everything down forever. He can, he can play aggressively too. And so, um, so what started out as a close match, um, kind of ended in pretty lopsided fashion on, on Medvedev's end. He, um, he won this match decisively, I think. Yeah, that's a very good summary. To, to be honest, I think we saw that, you know, both guys, that Nadal is going to have so much trouble in this matchup. Mm -hmm. Really, because of the patterns where you know Medvedev is so solid from the baseline, so good he can take that backhand early. He the the topspin forehand is not going to bother him. He can redirect. He can go down the line. Nadal slicing, we thought was going to be crucial, important in this match. But really, Medvedev was making good adjustments. Whether he was slicing back deep himself or he was stepping in and really getting low and hitting those cross court and changing the direction on the backhand or redirecting or coming up with really good inside out forehands as well. That's what surprised me is that he was going inside out and hitting it hard and flat and coming forward and finishing off points. And then you add, you couple that with his defense, like Owen was talking about the options that he has offensively, mm -hmm. defensively, and that he can bomb his serve when he's down break points. And that game where he broke back was the aggressive returning and aggressive, uh, aggressive play where he was, kind of forcing Nadal to come up with come up with offense easily and finish off points and he was just not able to hit it through Medvedev that's why we saw a lot of times Nadal having to serving and serve and volley or relying yeah. on these net rushes which he was volleying pretty well he has good hands Nadal but I think it really let him down in that three all game like Owen was talking mm -hmm. about that was the crucial game in that three all in the third set 40-15 up where you know Medvedev came up with some big passing shots and Nadal didn't quite hit his locations on the volley. And even in the tie break in the second set, 4-3 up, I think Medvedev was a little bit fortunate to uh, to win that point. It actually ended with a shank lob yeah. uh, forehand that I think Nadal let go uh, rightfully, but it was just some, some good fortune that panned out for Medvedev. And he was already up a break at that point in the mini mm -hmm. break in the tie break. So I think he really consolidated in that third set and was decisively the better player. Yeah. And you know, really took it to Nadal and Nadal, you know, didn't have the his usual spring in his legs that he would. And I think credit to Medvedev for really capitalizing on that and 
physically outlasting Nadal, which is really mm-hmm. not easy to do, especially the form that Rafa had. I mean, he went 2-1 and one in his group matches. He played very well against Rubla, very well against Tsitsipas. The match of the tournament for me was the 7-6, 7-6 match that he lost to team, even though, you know, I mean, it was very, very, very kind of decided by one or two crucial points in both tie breaks. And so he very well could have been the winner of that match too. Mm -hmm. So you really look at it and you say, Nadal had a great tournament, but Medvedev uh, stepped up and for the first time beat Nadal. And it's not totally surprising because he was so close in the US Open and he was so close last year. So he really just Mm. clarified what we were all thinking. Yeah. Um, So I think the three all game Nadal played against Medvedev, I think it kind of highlights really that Nadal is not in his prime anymore. Of course, I want to say all credit to Medvedev for winning this match, but something that's long been a skill of Nadal's is he has good hands at net, like you said, Vaughn, but also just coming in at the right time. He, um, right. You rarely see him get past because he's very good at only coming in when he's got a really, really high percentage play, when he's got an easy volley. And now, now when he's faced with players who are fitter than him and younger than him and more steady from the baseline now like Medvedev, he's kind of forced to sacrifice some of that and come in maybe when it isn't, when it's a little riskier. And, um, and so that's what he did here. And Medvedev burned him for it with, uh, with sharp passes. And so I think in the future with this rivalry, Nadal is going to have to look for another way to win, maybe with even more slicing or maybe a few more drop shots or more variety somehow. But I think, um, I think this match kind of made it clear that net, net play alone is not enough is not enough against Medvedev. Um, Nadal, Nadal is going to only lose lose more of that weapon's potency as time goes on because he he'll lose his ability to rally steadily even more. I think, and so um, and it also just shows how tough of tough of an opponent Medvedev is because he can hit sharp passing shots and he's great at staying back and he can volley well himself. He's got he's got good technique even if he doesn't come in all that often. And then of course he's got a big serve. He can throw in a huge second at any moment. Um and he's great at adapting his tactics on the fly. So he he's really a nightmare opponent for a lot of players. And this week we saw Nadal and Djokovic and team even as well. So I think I think he's got a great future ahead of him as well. Yeah. yeah. I I totally agree with that. Um I think you're right about the fact that Nadal is a percentage player at the net. And he really comes in, uh, you know, when it's set up by a brilliant approach that he can sort of dink into the open quarters, mm-hmm. hit a hit a drop volley winner where he's there's the chances of making a mistake are very low. And I think against Medvedev, he came he couldn't rely anymore on his legs and his fitness and defense. Yeah. So I think he had to come up with with those kind of shots, uh, those kind of serve and volley plays, which are not first nature to him. I mean, they're not Plan A. Mm-hmm. They're definitely exactly. they're definitely a plan B, if a plan B at all, they're really just part of a plan A that comprises more of high percentage topspin tennis followed by a touch at the net. Mm -hmm. So I think he was really forced out of his comfort zone by Medvedev, who himself surprised Nadal by coming in on a slice approach himself and then putting away the overhead, and Nadal had... Oh, that that was brilliant, yeah. Yeah, Nadal didn't know what hit him at that moment because it was kind of a deer-in-headlight situation where out of nowhere he just charged forward. Yeah. And it wasn't a predictable play at all from the Russian, yeah. and he just... And you, yeah. you could visibly Broke. see Medvedev read the slice and then run in. It was perfectly timed. And he did it again at the exact same moment against team in the final. Like, right. really, really smart, high IQ tennis. And I think that's what is really interesting too, good about this rivalry, that we, is the yeah. high IQ. I think both of these guys 
are tactical geniuses. Mm-hmm. And I think when you see two tactical geniuses square off, it's like a game of chess. And I think when you look at Medvedev, what makes it so what makes his tennis so impressive to me is it's not the most technically sound. It's not the most it's not something you would teach your, your player to do. Uh, the long windy strokes that he has on his forehand or the the low awkward backhand that he kind of hits where he has to bend low and but it's the the fact that he's always thinking three or four moves ahead you know it's almost like you're playing against you're playing against a chess guru in a way mm-hmm. and you have to figure out how to uh, you know outmaneuver him and it it brings out this brilliant contrast of style where you can really yeah. see his game come through i feel like with medvedev you have to watch the whole match or you're yeah. not going to get a feel for how how he plays because you might just mis- misjudge him you know and if but if you watch the whole thing you'll really realize that he can transform his game to where it's no it's in no particular category where he can mm. defend like he's yeah. five foot ten and serve aces like he's six foot six which he is basically no he's <laughs> yeah like six foot four five correct six five yeah, I think. Six, yeah. six foot five, yeah. six foot six actually yeah. and yeah, moves moves so well for his height it was really well impressively well and yeah. one of the things that I, you mentioned that he he just read this lice and he just came in and i feel like we were talking before the podcast like how about the the shanghai final uh between djokovic and, and murray in which um there was a uh, one of the, the the crucial moments in the match was when djokovic hit a tweener and off of a lob that murray played and murray didn't come to the net chose to stay in the baseline and i find that like it's really important to like read not read, but like realize the ma- like how the match is going, and then the shots and the opportunities that you can take to come to the net and even surprise your opponent. Like, right. um, I feel like so many players have been just stuck to the baseline, even when they hit great shots. And sometimes players like that, even like um, say Dominic Team, sometimes can fall, uh, fall victim of that too. And Djokovic, even Nadal, in which they just hit a perfect shot. And if you're playing against a player like Medvedev or Djokovic or Nadal or Murray, they can just like lob the all back and you're at the baseline and that's it you you, you could have volleyed for for a put away volley but you chose to stay in the in the baseline and now your opponent is back into it so your shot was worth nothing at that moment so i feel like it's really important and really interesting to see that medvedev has such a high iq that he's willing and able to do that the type of uh the type of thing and just don't think about the nadal um volley skills i think um one of the things that we get wrong is that like Nadal has easy volleys to play all the time sometimes, but I I feel like Nadal is a great volleyer and he's developed that like yeah. especially around since 2010 11 ish mm-hmm. he started like becoming much better at it uh, like really a like a more aggressive brand of tennis coming coming forward instead of just being at the baseline and defending and running everything down. Very good hands. The, the thing is, yeah, and the thing is about Nadal's game at the net is that. He still sets up the the play really well, so that he gives him more margin. So if he has to hit a great volley, um, his opponent, even if he hits a great pass, Nadal can still hit into an open court, and his opponent is more out of position than he would have if um, Nadal has just come recklessly. And that's one of the things that I found brilliant about Nadal is just the moments where he chooses to go to the net are not just surprising moments or just because he wants to change up things he just really knows what he's doing and he knows that he has a better chance of uh, winning in that way or you know yeah. even if he hits a like a less uh less than ideal volley he is still able to 
come up with a maybe a second volley or maybe not hit a second one because his opponent was just going to be way too far away or you know totally out of position sliding off to the backhand or the forehand and, you know i feel like this is this is where the brilliance of nadal comes in is that he not only he can hit great shots but he hits great shots with um you know yeah high margin strategy built and... built uh yeah a strategy and a tactic uh behind it it's not just right. for for kicks you know he mm. he he really thinks that thinks it through thinks thinks it through oh my goodness yeah. yeah, and that's one of his best assets is how 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 good he is at adapting and changing up his game and really transformed his game so much the last 15 years and become an all-court player that's yeah. boded well on all the other surfaces and not just on clay. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you look at it, it was a great tournament for him, for him, but just short. I mean, he'll be disappointed with not coming through that yeah. one. Yeah, and since he didn't, how about the final? Like, what mm. do you guys have to say mostly about the final? We've talked uh, yeah. here and there about it, but, like, if you guys had to sort of explain or summarize it and say, like, what this match represents and say um, how this match was won or lost, if you will, um, what what would you say about that one? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of closeness, it was pretty similar to Nadal, uh, Nadal Medvedev. Um, the loser of the match won the first set, then lost the second in the tiebreak, and then um, then lost the third, 6-3, I think it was. Um, yeah, 6-4 in this case, but similar uh, yeah. type of situation, physically, exhaustion. Mm. Yeah, so um, Medvedev started very, very well, I thought. He was um, he was actually bullying team around the court quite a bit. He was attacking well with his forehand. He was using it to hit inside out. Team had to save a couple break points very early, and Medvedev looked really good. And then two all forty love out of nowhere he just collapsed he he dumped an overhead into the net he missed a couple ground strokes um, I think he may have double faulted somewhere in there um, and then that was all team needed to win the first set um, I don't yeah. think Medvedev had a break point for the rest of that set and so um, so it was really interesting because Medvedev had this great start and he he lost it all through one bad game and then the second set I thought he was really up against it team team was defending so well. Um, he was winning a lot of the longer exchanges. He was using his slice to stay in points. Um, he was crushing his forehand. Medvedev had a couple really lucky escapes. I think he was down break point at 2-all and 3-all. And at 3-all, yeah. team had a forehand pass inside out with half the court open, and he, he missed it wide. Um, and, and that gave Medvedev life. He didn't break, but he, he held pretty comfortably into the tiebreak, which I honestly expected team to win because he had been the better player. Um and also because of how he had played the tie breaks against Djokovic, but but Medvedev crushed him. Um, team went up two zero, and then Medvedev actually whitewashed team. He won seven points in a row. Um, I thought that was pretty shocking. I don't remember the points exactly. Medvedev yeah, won a um, lot of them with really proactive play, but sorry. Yeah, I'll just just add on on that. That was a great summary of the scoreline wise, the momentum shifts. I thought, and you know, in that three all game. Medvedev, this is another example of that wild factor that we've all been ooing and mm. eyeing at. At three all, break point down, clearly the second best player up so far, uh, especially in the second set, you know, arguably not in the first. Really just that one bad game made the difference in the first set. But in the second set, three all, break point down, 83 mile per hour second serve. He comes in behind that, hits an okay volley in the in the court. It's kind of a floater. It's sitting up there. Team is super quick. He gets there with so much time, almost too much time. And he has the entire line open, a total... It was a, basically an open court. Medvedev was a sitting duck kind of at the top of the net, getting ready to hit hit a volley. And instead, Medvedev, uh, 
team tries to make it a little bit too sharp down the line, and he just pulls it wide, or, or long actually, long and hmm. long, and and all he really had to do was just, uh, you know, hit it right at Medvedev, or not go so much for the line, but really just place it centrally, and you know maybe if Medvedev gets a racket on it, he has another easy put away second volley, and then that's the break, but uh, you know he overthought it and he was screaming at his box after that and just. Like, how did I miss that? And then I think another mm-hmm. breakpoint chance flew by and Medvedev with his clutch serving. And really in the tie break, you're, like you said, two love up, loses seven points in a row. This is another example of where Medvedev comes in when you're not expecting it at all, comes forward, yeah. starts playing proactive. Like you said, really dictating with his forehand, you know, mm-hmm. his flattening that out and really going hard at the team's backhand and realizing that team was going to slice and it's going to be a floater and he can then put away the volley. And yeah. that's what he did. I think at 2-3 in the tiebreak, when he got the mini break, it was 4-2 when the switched ends. A great volley from Medvedev, a, uh-huh. a forehand volley. That team was, again, a deer in headlights, trying to come up with a passing shot, and he just kind of half hit it like it was a half volley. And his half volleys aren't uh, nowhere near what you might see from like a Federer, for instance, or yeah. from players in the 90s because he has this huge swing and... You know, I mean, it's not like a shot that he needs to really improve or anything, but it's more just mm-hmm. Medvedev made him hit a really low percentage half volley play uh, with very little room, and it was super deep in the yeah. court. And so um, Medvedev really took control of that second set tiebreak, and then it just looked like the sales came out of team. Yeah, and, yeah, and that, that third set. set. Medvedev wore him down. Team team got tired. He, he fought really bravely, fought off three break points early in that set. Yeah. But then... um. But then three all Medvedev again reads the slice, sneaks in, um, yeah, sneak puts away again. a volley, and then and then team just couldn't get into Medvedev's service games. I well, I, actually, I think I do. I do think he got from forty fifteen to deuce, but he never got to break point. And then thirty all to thirty all in the last game, but Medvedev closed him out with two big serves. Um, yeah, you could really see. I mean, it, it's like Medvedev wears someone down slowly, and, and then it snowballs. And he even did this to team who is up there with the fittest players on the ATP. Um, it it was really really impressive and kind of shocking. I mean, I guess team had had the physical match against Djokovic. It was a long match the day before, but really really impressive win from Medvedev. Showed his tactical know how yet again. Um, his I, I tend not to think of him as that as one of the fittest players in the world, but now I'd say on the on the ATP he is arguably the fittest, the most the one with the most endurance this week has shown. Um, so yeah, like just a tremendously impressive win from Medvedev. Yeah, and it was so impressive because you knew he wasn't going to win this match without being aggressive. And he mm. really took it to team, and he had more winners than team did. He came up with 37 times he comes up to the net and wins 28 of those points. That's a yeah. great percentage. Yeah, he came who's up 20 times this. in the second set, didn't he? Right, exactly. And he's not known 20 times in the second set. That's exactly right. And he came up with these volleys that you know, you know, you're not used to seeing him. You don't think of him as a great volleyer. Mm. But he has such good feel and instinct when he's up there, and he... And he doesn't come up, I'm surprised he doesn't come up there more often throughout the season and yeah. really build on that play because I feel like oftentimes, I've said this about Medvedev, that he tries to be aggressive and takes the initiative, but then sort of retreats back mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it's stuck in no man's land. But he really chose not to, he really had that tactical awareness in this match of how to finish points off at the yeah. net and make, you know, difficult, difficult volleys look easy. And I think... I think that's a credit to him and his all-court game and tactical awareness and genius. That yeah, and his what struck me is that he's actually a pretty decent uh, volleyer yeah. too. He 
He doesn't hit like floaty um, uh, volleys that hit, land on the middle of the court, but he actually makes them pretty low and just kind of like knifes them back. And you know, it's pretty. It's a really really good volleyer, you yeah. know, like and as a baseliner who normally defends and you know just keeps like tossing ball backs in play, kind of floaty, and then you know comes up with the goods at from time to time, especially with the forehand. I I thought it was actually more than. More than more solid than is were was way more solid than what I expected to for it to be like right. from you know from shots that I've watched, and he can actually really accelerate there. But like the the volley part of his game, I think, gets almost um, under the radar because of how great a baseliner he is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's going to be a continual improvement. I don't I don't think he's a natural volleyer by any means. He's a good volleyer. But I think, uh, you know, the more he uses it in these big situations and in big points, the more we'll really know about it. And I think mm-hmm. it's when you want to, when he's coming in off on his own terms, he's actually very solid, like you said. Yeah. But it's when he's forced to hit a low, awkward slice, when opponent hits a low, awkward slice or kind of changes it up. or Because he's so good side to side, you kind of have to move, test his north to south movement. And I think that's what... Uh, players, that's what a lot of coaches tell play, tell you to do against Medvedev. That slice it, make him come up with it, make him generate. Um, but then don't keep on slicing it and then make it predictable. Really, you mm-hmm. have to change it up, you know, hit a low slice, but then also drive the backhand or drive the forehand and really just keep him on his back foot, which is not easy because he's so adept at changing directions and mm-hmm. so quick to react. Yeah, I mean, Medvedev, like even the net game, which is not one of the bigger weapons in his arsenal, he was able to use it to his advantage, where in the middle of that second set, I was thinking, like, how is he going to win this match? He's been pretty clearly the second-best player on court. (laughs) And then it helped him finish the match in pretty, like, almost lopsided fashion. It was, was, again, like the Nadal match, a decisive win in the end. Um, Yeah. and, And he's just so good at using, going into areas where he's not the most comfortable, but um he somehow finds a way for it to help him win anyway it's it's amazing i don't think he kind of just takes that risk you know he's like what do i have to lose i'll just hit two first serves i'll just come in i'll just i'll just dunk the the volley with two hands uh, on the backhand side which no one does i'll just you know on match point i've just won the biggest title of my life you know what i'll just shrug it off and just just be like yeah you know i won and 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 this (laughs) is what i think a lot of yeah, and, and I this love is what that I he think. embraces that, and he embraces that yeah. role, and he says, "This is me, you know. This is who I am. Yeah. I made it my thing not to celebrate after these big titles because everybody has a thing. This is my thing now. Yeah, welcome to the club, guys." <laughs> and he just kind of announces himself, and it's like you're just, you just, you love a player like that who really just understands himself, embraces it, has that perspective mm-hmm. afterwards. I think he's going to be so good to bring new fans into the sport because I think yeah. his personality is so genuine that way that. Yeah, yeah, like... he is unapolog- unapologetically himself. Yeah. And and these these tactical shifts, like you want to see it when someone is down two sets in a break in the US Open final, or when someone's down a set against Novak Djokovic on a hard court, um, like in Cincinnati last year, you want to see the casino serving and the yeah. and the net rushes when someone's back is against the wall. And and often it has worked for him. Like it, it pays yeah. off. So I, I think we'll see more players I, I think he will inspire other players in the future to take similar risks. For sure, and he came up with an under underarm serve early in the tournament as well, and yeah, yeah. and it worked. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other arm serve, I don't understand what's the fuss about. Like people make it, 
it's it's yeah unreal it's it's just kind of like a drop shot you know like yeah. your opponent is like standing way back behind why not just drop shot your 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 serve it's it's a legit tactic yeah. tennis didn't even start with an overhead serve yeah. so whatever so i mean I, i i really enjoyed that yeah you can do this not as a mocking thing but as a strategy thing mm-hmm. and as a, as a mocking thing in the sense like nick curios is is <laughs> i personally i yeah. enjoy it sometimes and sometimes i'm not i'm less keen but in the case of medvedev i think it's pretty you know it's pretty legit honestly right because yeah. you and know shrug, he's using yeah. it you know he's not using it to provoke his opponent you know he's using it yeah. as a meaningful ways to win the point to win a point and that's yeah. what he said afterwards i loved when he was asked about it when he was asked to like what was going through your mind when you came up with that service like i wasn't trying to disrespect zverev at all i just otherwise if i wanted to disrespect him i would have done it at 40 love mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says that i did it at at 30 all because i knew he's like 10 feet behind the baseline you know yeah and yeah and um i don't point. know if you remember when uh curios did it twice to nadal at wimbledon last year and they right. asked him about it in press and he said like this is why i don't do it i only do it twice and i get asked about it and i'm like dude it works both times you use it you keep doing that until it doesn't work like that's when you need to be yeah. worried i think if you can make it work as a tactic it's as legitimate as any other tactic out there it's it is, i just don't yeah. think it's a great tactic because it rarely works right <laughs> You have to be really. Yeah. I think it's it's, it's it like as a surprise tactic. It's yeah. even more of a surprise tactic than the servant volley, for example. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, yeah. That, that's a thing. Yeah. But yeah, back to the the shrug. I think yeah. it's a, just an interesting thing for me. Um, lots of people are saying, "Oh, it's just disrespectful." He didn't want to win a match or whatever. He doesn't respect. It. He nah. literally said it like in, in press conferences, and that's one of the things why it's probably more important to to read or listen to the press conferences because yeah. players actually get asked about those things and they answer and he just as as you said one she said right, i just want to think yeah it kind of reminds me of, of uh when uh naomi osaka won uh the u.s open and she just like laid down yeah laid down on the ground and she said oh yeah i just seen like lots of um great players winning matches like these and they just lie down and i wonder what they were seeing and i thought it was so poetic in a sense and yeah of course medvedev is kind of like the uh the cool guy version of that is like hey, i just i just want a thing like that too you know so yeah i think it's pretty <laughs> legit if you can if you can keep doing it i think it's i think it's gonna be fun mm-hmm. imagine if he just like wins his first grand slam yeah. imagine if he beats like djokovic he's the probably gonna do the same thing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> five hour match just smiles yeah. to his box i'm i am holding out a bit of hope that he'll fall on his back yelling uh because i love to see that but it, oh, it, yeah. it would it would be very um as Catherine whitaker put it it would be very baller if he just shrugged <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he did say apparently, like uh, as I as I listened, in the, he 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 had to hold himself really hard to like actually shrug and not just like jump in happiness. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it when players do something unique and they they're honest about it. They have that sense of humor and that awareness mm-hmm. to not you yeah. know just be like every other player and they they come up with their own thing. It's it's great. Yeah, maybe they can bring back some of the personality of uh, yeah. 80s and 70s yeah. tennis <laughs> so yeah let's hope in the future that something like that will happen yeah so yeah i guess that that'll be it for for us today and um thank you all for listening if you came out came all the way over here and yeah um stay tuned we're gonna have like some some news for um the next season so we're still gonna have some episodes left for the end of 2020 but then you're probably gonna have a, a break or something like that but we're gonna have new things in 2021 starting with obviously owen joining us and the team um so uh yeah just stick around and 
all the links in the description. Vansh is at VanshV2K on Twitter. I myself is, for now, tennis underscore bagels. And Owen is at tennis nation. So follow us. We have more links in the description. And thank you all so much. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you, Andre. I had a great time. Um, looking forward to more podcasts in the future. And I hope everyone out there is staying safe and healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to chat again um, in this form. And uh, yeah, it was great to bring on Owen again. Looking forward to him joining the team uh, full time next year in 2021. And uh, yeah, take care, Andre. Uh, stay safe, everyone. And uh, please wear your mask. And, uh, you know, uh, coronavirus is still going on. So be mindful of that. And yeah, enjoy the holidays. And we'll be back with more episodes. All right. So, yeah. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.